Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Blade Runner 2049, starring Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, Anna de Armas, Sylvia Hoax, Robin Wright, Mackenzie Davis, Carla Jury, Lenny James, Dave Bautista, Jared Leto, directed by Denis Veneuve. This is The Replicant Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart, wondering, do androids dream of toasted cheese? (laughs) (laughs) I know I do. You know what? A good host needs a good name. So this is Jacob. <laughs> we can call you Jay. That'd be great. Or Joe. <laughs> yeah, J.K. Are we doing Men in Black here? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick. We are, who knows if this is going to be the last one. We have no idea, but this is going to end our return to the Philip K. Dick retrospective series that we started way back with Blade Runner in 2011 when we were looking forward to Adjustment Bureau. But wow, I am of mixed minds going into a new Blade Runner movie in that we had some definite opinions back in 2011 when we talked about the original Blade Runner movie. And I, for one, didn't think we'd ever come back to this universe. And I'm wondering how our three different opinions on that original movie, although we did share some similarities, are going to come into play for this amazing big-budget Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, the funny thing is, you know what? Screamers do six or seven sequels. Uh, all, all that other stuff, you can do sequels. Blade Runner seemed like, no, holy, you, you can't do a sequel to Blade Runner. That is now considered a sci-fi classic. And you know what? I did rewatch it. They didn't do, like, a marathon where they played both Blade Runners in theaters, at least where I lived. But they did Blade Runner one night and then Blade Runner 2049 came out. I did rewatch Blade Runner for this. It was the final cut, which I haven't seen. And oh boy, did that really up my opinion of that original film. Getting rid of all that bad Harrison Ford narration and seeing it on a big screen where all those noises are just loud and you get lost in that movie. Wow, that's a film I want to revisit more often now after getting that theatrical experience. What about you, Brock? You, I think, were the coolest on it. I mean, I think everyone comes to it and deals with a certain level of disappointment. I certainly did the first time I saw it, but it does take time. It does take seeing, I think, the better cuts of the film. Brock, have you gone back? Did you go back and watch a cut? And which cut did you watch? 
watch? I did not watch the full cut, no. I just, you know, again, you said it for me. I just have such hot and cold on this movie. I remember having such a good experience, and since watching the final cut for our podcast and that we did on Blade Runner, I've always appreciated the movie, but I came away with more of a coherent experience with it. But the last thing I wanted to do, Stuart and Jacob, <laughs> was watch that movie again. It's amazing how I can respect something, but do not want to have the experience of it. That movie's like a brief hour and 55 minutes compared to this one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, I never thought we'd get here. I, I mean, until I saw the trailer, I didn't believe it. I heard they were shooting. I'm like, yeah, it's not happening. No way. Harrison Ford's <laughs> just digging for a paycheck. I just couldn't believe that it would ever exist. And maybe it was just because I didn't want to watch Colin Farrell Total Recall, and we promised people we would cover that when Blade Runner 2 came out. But Blade Runner 2 was in development, really, ever since it took off as director cut form in 1992. Remember, it bombed in 82, was reevaluated as a home video sensation in the 90s, and then it was in active discussion. All for the last 15 years, Ridley Scott was talking about different ways to bring it back. Web series, TV series, Christopher Nolan could make it, he's going to make it, no, he's going to make the Alien. Once he said he was doing the Alien prequels, I was like, well, that's it. It's the bu He'll never get to that bucket list item. It just He's too old to ever get around to it. I did not know that he'd be outsourcing it to new talent. Okay, do we know why he did... This is what blows my mind, because I wasn't on the Alien Covenant show, but I did watch the movie. He came back for that, which, it's fine. It's a mediocre Alien movie. It doesn't have the grandeur of a Blade Runner 2. Like, why did Ridley pick that over coming back for 2049. And I have to say, both he and Harrison Ford were very adamant in the press about how great this script was. And Harrison Ford didn't say that about, or didn't say it as strongly about The Force Awakens, or I heard there's an, a fourth Indiana Jones movie he may or may not have done, and they didn't say that about that script either. <laughs> and why would he switch over to Alien? My guess, and I think Stuart knows the answer, but my guess is because he did Prometheus, he felt that he needed to finish what he started there and didn't have a chance to jump over to here. Stuart, am I on the right track? I mean, it's not like I can call the man and find out, but I presume actually maybe part of the problem is that Ridley and Harrison didn't get along so well on the original set. And that might have been part of the reason for getting Ford back. Part of the contract negotiations is I'm not working for that asshole. I mean, it was a very contentious set, and a lot of the contention had to do with the fact that Ridley wanted to make Deckard a replicant and Ford thought it was very important to have a human perspective for the movie in order for it to work for the audience. I do agree with Ford. Even though I've seen the final cut, I do agree with Ford on that. But to be debated later on in the show. Yeah, I definitely think we're going to redress all of what Blade Runner means by coming back to this one. But if it can't be Ridley Scott for, you know, I've said my piece about Alien Covenant. What do you guys think about Denis? Denis Veneuve. I did see Arrival. That was his big movie last year. That's why he got picked for this, right? Because of Arrival? Absolutely. And I did see that. And I found the pacing of that movie to be a little labored, uh, not as bad as the original Blade Runner, but certainly they had some pacing issues in that one, but man, did the man know how to make a science fiction movie with interesting science fiction elements, and then bizarre ones as well, weaving into a story. 
Uh, he also did Sicario, though, Jacob, before he did Arrival, and I very much like Sicario. Yeah, did you see that one? I haven't seen Sicario. I did go back this week, though, and watch Prisoners, which Arrival and Prisoners were the two movies that they were advertising that this director is from, and I knew Prisoners, the, the basic plots. So I did go back and watch that. Another two-and-a-half-hour movie, which doesn't need to be. And you know what? Arrival, I wasn't as hot as everyone seemed to be on that one. I don't know why I got an Oscar nom. It's fine. Prisoners was fine, but I'm just guessing he did a big sci-fi movie that was Oscar-nominated. So did Ridley Scott, though. He had The Martian, but that's why they gave this to him. I don't see anything in his directing. Again, he does very competent stuff. Nothing to do a mind-melding experience like that original Blade Runner, though. Well, he's not a music video or commercial director, but I think what he does bring in all of his films, I've seen a few other ones as well. He made this little film called Enemy as well with Jake Gyllenhaal, in which he had a double, is that he really tries to take on the immigrant experience, you know, Arrival, Sicario, Prisoners. It's all about the other. And I mean, that's a big theme in the Blade Runner world. And he treats it with self-seriousness. He makes weighty movies. And I think if you're going to make Blade Runner, it would be awful to see this get turned into a cheap action movie franchise. I mean, that may have been what we wanted back in 82, but what it's lauded for now is being for so somber and dystopian. And you want a director that can capture that feel. Arrival had some of that feel. And I agree. I don't think any of his movies are as good as his fans claim they are, but I've enjoyed them all. You know, he certainly was a good fit for this world. Getting Harrison Ford back just meant that they had a lot of money. That encouraged me because it was like, <laughs> oh, good. They're going to spend a lot to make this look good. And getting Gosling, I'm a fan. I mean, I think he is easily the best graduate of the Mickey Mouse Club. And <laughs> I think he could take over the franchise. High praise, Stuart. High praise. Funny thing about this. I've been watching a lot of the interviews and they repeat... Besides Harrison Ford forgetting Gosling's name, which is the running gag of all these things, they keep repeating the story that Harrison Ford went to the producer and said, we have to get this guy Ryan Gosling. He's going to be perfect for this. And he was already on everyone's mind. Apparently, they wrote this with him in mind. So that is the perfect choice as well, because while I love Ryan Gosling as well, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Lars and the Real Girl and Half Nelson, amazing performances. I actually watched The Notebook fairly recently, and he's phenomenal in that. Honestly, I, on the record, I said it. He's great in it. He really is. I haven't gotten to that one yet. and You should. I believe he's good. <laughs> I have no doubt that you're right. It's just not usually the kind of movie I go see, but I would see it because of him. I would see anything he would make. Exactly. My point is that sometimes he has this kind of blank face on him. He has this little, like, I can't really read what he's going on. He's something definitely going on in his eyes, but his face is like a blank slate, and I really wish for a little bit more. In this role, it's perfect! Yeah. Where in La La Land, it kind of drove me nuts. So it's kind of perfect. They had the right actor for the right role in this movie. That's a good point, because I think of some of his great movies, Drive, A Place Beyond the Pines, where, I don't know if that's a great movie, but he's great in it. He does have that, where he internalizes a lot. And I think, yeah, that's going to be perfect for this role, where you never quite know what's going on with them. I'm a Gosling fan, too, probably because he always gets the coolest jackets in movies. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Here he gets one. Drive he had. I don't know. He had a cool flannel and Lars and the Real Girl. Maybe that counts. But yeah, no, Gosling, I think, is a good choice. I also think it's a good time to bring this back. I mean, not only because we're approaching the anniversary of when it the story is set. Remember, 2019 Los Angeles, everything's supposed to be dark and rainy, and that's the future we were heading to. Well, that's only two years away. Uh, we want to, you know, get back to that. But also, I just think 
mainstream society is ready for this story. We've had a lot of it recently. Back in 1982, we were just starting to think, well, maybe robots will one day catch up with humanity. And now it's, are they going to replace us? I mean, driverless cars and all the movies. Her got an Oscar nomination. Ex Machina has become a cult hit. They just remade Ghost in the Shell, which is an anime obviously influenced by Blade Runner. It is time for a Blade Runner 2. It's time for the originator to come back and prove they can still sit on the throne. So why don't we talk about a plot summary so we can get into it, Stuart? It's been 30 years since Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard ran away with Rachel, his replicant lover played by Sean Young. Rachel's remains have just been unearthed at a synthetic farm in the California countryside, and close examination of her bones reveals the impossible. The robotic woman died in childbirth. Even in the year 2049, androids have no way to reproduce on their own, and they remain enslaved by humanity for that reason. So this is a real potential scandal brewing. LA Police Chief Joshi, a human played by Robin Wright, knows this miracle is potent enough to set off another android uprising. So she orders her replicant Blade Runner K, star Ryan Gosling, to hunt down and kill Rachel's child, which was apparently rescued through C-section by Dave Bautista's medic, Sapper Morton. And that's another important detail about the year 2049. Newer models of replicants retire older Nexus models of replicants. Kay is a little unnerved by this new assignment because he's never hunted anything born from a human before. But he can't tell his boss no, so he starts investigating. And first stop is the old Tyrell building, now run by Jared Leto's augmented tech genius Neander Wallace. And he's there to see if they have a file on Rachel. Most of the records were wiped by a massive data breach known as the Blackout of 2022, but at least Kay is going to hear the Voight Kampf test from the original movie. And next, he's off to the nursing home to chat with Gaff, Deckard's former Blade Running colleague, once again played by Edward James Olmos. DNA records eventually lead Kay to a San Diego orphanage where his worst suspicions begin to be confirmed. Kay may in fact be the missing replicant-born child. The robotic Blade Runner always assumed his childhood memories were implants, but then he finds the wooden toy horse he remembers hiding inside a boiler at this orphanage. So it could be him. He lies to his boss, tells her that he found and killed Rachel's baby, and this buys him 48 hours, enough time to go on the run. But Kay is not leaving without Joy, his holographic lover played by Anna de Armas. Another quirky fact about 2049, robots fall in love with other robots, artificial intelligence. So until recently, Joy was trapped in a projector beam. She's just a hologram in Kay's apartment, but the bounty hunter was able to buy an upgrade that allows Joy to now travel with him in a little wand emanator. Kay and Joy consult with a pawn dealer who tells them the toy horse he found at the orphanage has radiation levels matching fallout readings from Las Vegas a city that was apparently abandoned years ago after a dirty bomb exploded there. But except Sin City isn't completely uninhabited. Living among the holographic projections of Elvis, Marilyn, and Liberace is Rick Deckard, played by a much older, much crabbier Harrison Ford. Does the gray hair on the guy mean he's not a replicant? Well, it means he's not Nexus 6, which had a four-year lifespan. Maybe he's Nexus 7. The filmmakers really don't want to answer that question. Instead, they just have Deckard throw a few punches with Kay before the two Blade Runners bond over whiskey. And Deckard explains that he never met his child, so he can't confirm if Kay is that child. But what happens in Vegas does not stay there. Love, the replicant henchwoman of Neander Wallace, played by Dutch newcomer Sylvia Hoax, beats up Kay and takes Deckard back to her boss. Jared Leto tries to get Harrison Ford to give up his child's whereabouts, 
by bribing him with an imperfectly made Rachel model replicant, but Deckard isn't having any of that. Meanwhile, a band of replicant rebels led by Frasia, Hayam Abbas, tracked down Kay and tend to his wounds. Frasia was there with De Bautista when Rachel delivered her miracle baby, so she can confirm that Kay is not that child. The baby is actually a she. It's Carla Jury's Anna Styline, a scientist who believes she's been kept in isolation all her life because she has an immune system deficiency and currently spends all her time alone making happy memories for replicants. Frasia asks Kay to kill Rick Deckard before he leads Wallace to Anna, and so the Blade Runner takes off in his really cool flying car and shoots down the convoy as it travels along the wall that separates L.A. from the ocean. Kay gets in another fight with Love and wins this time, but instead of killing Deckard, he takes Deckard to Anna's lab so that father and daughter can meet at last. What part does Kay play in this family tree? Well, that remains a mystery, as the injured replicant lays down on the snow-covered steps and possibly prepares to die as credits roll. That was quite a plot summary, Stuart, but you missed the three prequels that came out before this. <laughs> there's even more plot that didn't fit into this movie. Yes, two hours and 45 minutes, but there's 30 more minutes that you need to watch beforehand. I don't know. Do you need to watch it? Need is a strong word there, Stuart. <laughs> need is a strong word. Did you guys do it? Did you go online and Google Blackout 2022, 2336 Nexus Dawn, and 2048 Nowhere to Run? I did. I did not do that, Stuart. I got the email from you saying, here are the links and I click through. So basically, I would not have done it unless you made it simple for me to do. But I did watch all three movies, and my question first right off the bat is, you are confirming that they had the blackout video made, but the other two were actually deleted scenes from the movie and made into short movies because they wanted to have it out there? No, no, no. They came out from different directors. They all had Denis. I'm just going to call him by his first name because I don't want to tackle that French-Canadian last name. <laughs> they all had Denis doing an intro to him saying, oh, I, you know, I had this chance to get directors I know to do these other parts and so yeah I, I remember Nowhere to Run was the first one to come out even though it's the closest to 2049 that's the first one I saw and then as the other ones were released I did watch them. I tried to stay empty I didn't even watch any of them before I watched this movie I saw it twice first night opening night I went to the IMAX showing second night I saw it in real D 3D and by the time I saw the second one I had seen these shorts I don't know that it adds much of anything other than we understand that the blackout of 2022 was created by replicants. That replicants in their fight against humanity, being tired of treated like slave labor, actually set off a electronic pulse that erased, it like wiped all electronic devices and mankind fell into a dark age. So that was helpful to learn. I'll say out of all these, 2022 provides the best exposition, the most necessary, I guess, if you're wondering about that blackout and why these Nexus replicants are still being hunted down because that blackout, the whole point of that was to wipe out the records of who was a Nexus replicant because, yeah, there was that, again, very cliche, humans and robots hate each other and we're going to fight, and which I didn't like about that, though, even though it's a beautiful piece of anime. But yeah, that is the most relevant. And it was made by the guy who did uh, some of the Animatrix and Cowboy Bebop. We've seen his work before. Yeah, Cowboy Bebop, a big fan of that. So I was excited about that. I have to agree with you, Jacob. I think of all three of them, this one is the most relevant, but most telling is when Stewart did his plot summary, he said another replicant uprising. And why 
the blackout was mentioned in the movie. I don't think it was a replicant mentioned in the movie that caused the blackout, i.e. with Stuart's external knowledge, he was able to say another <laughs> replicant uprising, right? See how I'm going with this? So it's kind of cool that that is the most relevant thing for us to get from these three shorts. And if you're going to watch any of them, I suggest watching that one first. Also, I would add that Luke Scott isn't much of a director. Yes. Last name, he is the son of Ridley, and he has made a movie on his own, a pretty forgettable science fiction film that was pretty much a ripoff of Ex Machina called Morgan. Came out last year. I don't recommend it. But basically, he gets the duty of doing these other two, which basically gives Jared Leto five more minutes of screen time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 2036, Nexus Dawn. Again, we find out, oh, replicants have been banned, and he's going to make them anyway. He's taken over the Tyrell Corporation. And I don't think we see this in the movie. I kept waiting to see this in the movie. The whole point with his replicants, the reason they're better, one, they're going to obey you. So when he tells this replicant to kill itself in front of this, I don't know what government agency this is. This feels very small scale, like in <laughs> <laughs> back room somewhere <laughs> yeah agents of shield maybe i don't they were really small time yeah but they're supposed to if you look up into the left in their eye you could see that serial number you never do see that in the movie i kept waiting for that to come up they reference it a couple times what do they reference a couple times a number on their eyeball yeah that there's a serial number to easily identify these new oh you see it in the movie it's in the movie yeah batista's eyeball gets uh taken and we see it for real. Does he? Because he's he's a Nexus, though. Yeah, I know. He, he's not a Wallace one. So that that's why I found that confusing then. Okay. Yeah, no, there's some <laughs> continuity problems here. The more that they try to explain the past and carefully hide what they never want to reveal, namely that Rick Deckard is or isn't a replicant, uh, they think they can do something clever here by saying there's no records and we can never know. I do think that they mess up. I mean, they, they went to Comic-Con and they presented dates that do not jive with these dates. And there's a whole thing about around the date of June 10th, 2021. Was Rick Deckert there to carve something for his child or not? I mean, I think there's a lot about the script that doesn't add up, doesn't make sense. We'll get into it when we get in there. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one here <laughs> feeling that. No, yeah. I definitely feel like in trying to do detail work, they end up oftentimes contradicting themselves. Okay, I was confused with the Batista eye. That explains it now. They just messed up on their continuity. The least necessary of the prequels, 2048, Nowhere to Run. I guess if you're a big Batista fan, you get to see him fight some more. There you go. If you love Guardians of the Galaxy and want to see him defend a poor, <laughs> helpless child, here he can be a hero, where he's not in this movie. But I thought it was something about why he's staying on that farm, like he's trying to hide because he's now hunted from that... He scared the people he was friendly with. He scared them and he had a run. But why would he be on that farm again? Wouldn't he always be staying there because the box of bones is there? Anyone he's protecting that, blah, blah, blah. So why was he in the city and now why is he in the run just a year before? That didn't jive with me time-wise either. I did find that entire fight scene fun to watch. I always do like watching Dave Batista have a fight scene. Of course, the guy was an ultimate fighter, wasn't he? Like he was a professional. Yeah, in WWE, yeah. Oh, was he a wrestler? Yeah. Yeah, he's done both. Okay, there you go. So the guy knows how to fight and it's really great. I also found his acting in that short quite illuminating. I don't really remember him doing anything like that, even in Inspector and in Guardians of the Galaxy. I've always found him fine, but here I actually found him doing some quality acting that I did not expect. 
and maybe because I didn't expect it, I'm giving him a little more credit than maybe you two would, but I thought he did a good job acting in both the scene in the movie and in the short. A whole lot less laughing in this than he'd find in Guardians. Yeah, I, I think you can have the debate. Is it The Rock or Bautista, the best wrestler actor? I mean, it's worth considering here, but Bautista makes a really good case for himself here at the opening of the movie. Again, I'm going to talk continuity and problems that I'm having. So, what we learn from the opening scroll in these three movies is that, okay, in 2019, Replicants Nexus 6 was the highest version, and they had a four-year lifespan, and they went and killed Tyrell because they wanted more life, and it could not be given to them. I just watched the final cut. Tyrell tells them that. And Tyrell dies, and whoever takes over is like, oh yeah, we can totally increase their lifespan, because the next generation, which is now Nexus 8, they're skipping 7, because maybe that's Rachel and Deckard, I don't know, but they're skipping 7. Yeah, no, it's like the iPhone, they got an 8 and a a 10, there's no (laughs) 9. That's a secret one that only dead Steve Jobs has. But whatever... The point is, now they have unlimited life, and this Bautista, who is a Nexus 8, can live for 30 years. And so they've just tossed that conflict all of a sudden. Would there be a need for Blade Runners in 2049 if the only robots that run are these models that existed for a couple years? You know, 2020, 2021... And then that was it. Then Tyrell went bankrupt and there were no more. Well, I feel like there's not a whole lot of Blade Runners in this world because one of the shocks is they tell us very early, Kay is a replicant himself. He's a Wallace version and he's very lonely, not just because he's a replicant. Of course, they're going to play up that he's all by himself and everyone's going to call him a skin job and hates him for what he is. But I, I just feel like, oh yeah, there's these problems with these rogue robots still and we'll just take replicants and we'll have them do that and we're going to stick to regular LAPD dirty work. Is it a problem? This guy's running a farm. (laughs) We need protein. Apparently there was a famine and to combat that we have robots now working the farmlands of California. This movie opens very much like the original movie. We have a shot of the eye. For no reason. It opens up with an eye for no reason. (laughs) Yeah, we shot of an eye and then the circular pattern of a crop field. Kay is asleep at the controls. I thought that was a solar field. Those look like solar panels all over to me. Yeah, maybe. The point that I take away from this is Kay is asleep at the controls. Is he leading this mission or is he following a plot that has been set up for him? Again, we will have a debate about his nature, his character, and who he really is that will not be conclusive. I do note that his full name is KD6-3.7, but they call him K. For short, because it's easier to say, obviously, and also because K is the main character of Franz Kafka's The Trial. If you've ever read that, it's basically a metaphor about the story of mankind being accused of a crime they didn't commit and dying for it. They're trying to make all kinds of literary allusions within this sequel. So not a Men in Black reference. No, no, they are not <laughs> making Men in Black. They will continue to make references to Dickens, to Nabokov, Kafka. Treasure Island. Yeah, this is a very literary sequel. You know, what's funny is that when they said it's a replicant farm, I thought the farming that he was doing was like replicant food. Not run by replicants, but I thought the food itself was replicant. Yeah, apparently it's grub worms. That's what we see Bautista standing in, in a greenhouse covered in Russian characters. I think Russia is the new Japan. You know, in 2019, it looked like Japan took over L.A., 
Now it looks there later. There's some hologram ballerinas. It's still Soviet Russia too. It's yeah. CCCP. Yeah, I did notice that detail. I guess that makes it a more relevant threat since Russia has <laughs> been in the news lately. Yeah, we see these grubs. Are those real grubs? In that Batista prequel, he's like selling worms or something. I thought he was like making those as you know because in this Blade Runner world, again, you don't really get it from this film or the original. But there are no animals that they build these fake versions. You got to be super rich to own a real horse. As we'll see later on. I guess they could grow grubs and grind them up into protein bars. That's what we're going to eat in the future, bugs. I think that, yes, what they're going with the novel. Remember, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep talked, and, and we saw a lot more of the California countryside. Everything was poisoned by some kind of toxic disaster, so nothing could grow. Here, he's propping up a tree. It's dead, but he keeps it tethered there, just for sentimental reasons, I get the sense that almost all life is eradicated here. I think most people are bald. Uh, the radiation sickness for anyone <laughs> that lives long enough, they go bald. So you really don't even need Blade Runners. The fashion police could catch, you know, <laughs> who's who here. Except I guess Bautista's bald too. Maybe that's his way of blending in. I just want to speak for all the bald people in the world. We do not like being called out for being not fashionable, Stuart. <laughs> what is that? No, no, I'm not saying they're not fashionable. I'm saying that anyone can tell the difference between a bald person and a person with hair, which are the replicants. Replicants have hair and bald people are the natural humans. So why do you need these eye tests? Why do you need these hunters to go down and find who's who? It's pretty easy to spot. But Batiste is hiding because he shaved his head and living alone on a farm. Okay, that's profiling, but okay. I guess the whole movie is about profiling. <laughs> <laughs> that's his job, man. I don't know what to tell you. It is the LAPD. <laughs> and it's robot on robot. I mean, that's the twist here. They've outsourced it to the robots can kill themselves. And I guess Kate just doesn't have emotions or doesn't think that's so bad because these are old models. They need to be wiped out. They're from a different group. Tyrell is not the same thing as Wallace. Yeah, and if you watch that prequel, the Wallace ones are much more compliant. In that prequel, we see one kill itself when it's told. It's given a choice to either kill Wallace or kill itself, and of course it kills itself. They're supposed to not harm humans, and I guess that's why Wallace has been allowed to rebuild them. And Sapper's a strange one, because what is said is that he's been on this farm since 2020. That can't be true. That's probably just a lie, and he took over for somebody else. But... Sometime around 2021, Rachel was here, gave birth to a child, and now her remains are buried underneath a tree. Here's a tip. If you don't want anyone to find the body, don't put it under the only tree in California and put a flower on it like it's a grave. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. By the end of this movie, I, I, I'm trying to think back on it. I'm like, was this whole thing a setup so it would be found out that there are a version of replicants that can have babies? Because that's going to be the central problem for Wallace, too, is that he can't build replicants that can procreate, and he needs them to so they could have more of them and they could expand more into the universe. So I'm trying to think, was this a whole thing an elaborate ruse? It, it feels like here's all these little hints, and that's always the problem with a detective story is like how much much of this is put there to motivate the story or how much of this comes naturally. I, I do feel like you could say there's a conspiracy by the replicants 4K to find out that there's babies. So I don't know. They could get Deckard or something for their robot war by the end. Uh, yeah, we'll be continuing to talk about <laughs> who's in control of this plot and where it's going. But I will take it at face value that this is happenstance. I just happened to be hunting down one of the last Nexus 8s. And of course, it was the one that was shepherding Rachel and her remains 30 years ago. Still putting flowers on the grave. Wasn't even his girl, but whatever. Okay. 
Right. I read somewhere, Stuart, that this opening scene with Dave Bautista was originally written for the first Blade Runner movie, and they popped it in this movie, which is probably one of the reasons it works so well opening up this world and reintroducing all of us to this kind of world where replicants live and getting everyone back on track and introducing the character of Ryan Gosling's K. I thought this opening scene was composed beautifully. I liked how it was very reminiscent of a lot of different kinds of genres, not only just detective stories in film noir, but maybe even kind of like a Terminator movie even. It was a really a lot of fun, uh, this opening sequence with the two guys going head to head, knowing why the other one is there, sizing each other up, and then having a battle. I thought it was a really great introduction to this entire movie. Well, I think that Villeneuve is a good visual storyteller. What I will credit this movie continuously in every scene is it looks amazing and not just because they have a lot of money i've seen a lot of expensive movies this looks better than ghost in the shell this looks better than valerian this is a great looking movie because of the attention to details and because it's being directed by a real filmmaker who knows how to compose shots you know what they do with that boiling pot of garlic really helps underline the tension here so Mood is heavy in this, and that's everything in the Blade Runner world, right? We want that somber, sad, permeating tragedy. I mean, that is the feel of Blade Runner that I most need preserved, and Villeneuve really does that here and, and in every scene. And the fight is good, too. Because it's Blade Runner, it's not filled with action, and it shouldn't be, but they want to kick it off. It's a long film, so they give us a good fight to start off. And I do think for a lot of younger people, this is what they're seeing for the first time. They haven't seen that Blade Runner movie, probably. And it's funny, I've gone back reading a lot of web posts about people who, who did go back and watch the first Blade Runner for the first time. They're like, wow, this movie is really slow and hard to get through. <laughs> like, so that that's just a normal process of dealing with Blade Runner is getting through that stage. But yeah, the visuals here, I mean, that, that shot of that dead tree, I think is beautiful. And I do think that is an important part of making a Blade Runner movie feel like a Blade Runner movie. For better or worse, you do need to fit that mood and that gloom of Ridley Scott's original vision. I actually found they did that right off the bat when they started the movie off with all those uh, different studios and production companies. All their logos were in black and white and they started off that somber, drawn out kind of mood with those production stills. I thought that was amazing that they, they did all of that up front before the scroll. So they really started us off right from the get-go with this kind of mood and atmosphere, and this scene just sold it completely as well. And I liked also that it looked real, they were on a set, and then they had the CGI with the drone finding the box underneath the ground. I felt it seamlessly went together. The CGI complemented the actual footage and vice versa. I thought it was a very strong usage in combination of two different techniques of filmmaking. And we haven't been to this part. In no part in the original movie did we step outside of Los Angeles. We go back to Los Angeles. After this opening scene, Kay is going to head back, and it doesn't look exactly like we remember. I guess we're drilling less. There's less oil refineries <laughs> and fire. <laughs> you, you, you telling me in 30 years, there's still no use for glow-in-the-dark umbrella <laughs> handles? Like, that was the thing I was missing most. I'm like, where's the glow-in-the-dark umbrella handles? I love those. You know what I notice is that there's just no stretch of land that is not used. That, like, the housing complexes are so built up, there's barely any lights because you're just looking at roofs. You can only see things through, like, the little strips of streets. I love that detail, like, as you're getting this overhead shot. Again, I, I'm going to—the things I love here is what reminds me of Blade Runner, which is— 
is just a lot of establishing shots and sound effects. But yeah, when you're going over LA, it almost feels like you're getting ready to do the Death Star trench run. It feels like it's all just buildings. And then if you look just far down enough, you'll see light, you'll see life down in those trenches between these very tall, built up skyscrapers and apartment buildings. And you'll still see billboards for Atari and Pan Am. They went out of business even <laughs> when the first movie was out. I love that. But at Coca-Cola, Johnny Walker, Sony, yeah, they, they keep all of that aesthetic. I love all that stuff. The detail work here is tremendous. Well, Sony, you know, helped make the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Johnny Walker will get a product placement later when they're at the bar. But when they get back to the city, here's my first confusing scene of the movie. He has to go into this sort of uh, repetition exercise out of a Meisner class and they call it a baseline test. What is this about? This feels to me like an updated Voight Kampf test for these new Wallace replicants and it's just not as engaging. Yeah, it's what? He has to repeat a word even though he's being asked a lot of questions? Here's my take on it. There's nothing I think that's ever made, said conclusively. It's post-traumatic baseline test. I would assume if you're a human being and you were stuck in a white room and talking to a HAL computer that's emitting a high tone and asking you all these invasive personal questions, you would have an emotional response. You know, what is it like to love? What is it like to hold your child? What part of you is missing? Cells. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're trying to get through some strange poem about cells interlinking and white porcelain, what have you. He's called Constant K. He doesn't get emotional. I assume his baseline remains robotic. If he were starting to develop more human emotions, they would consider maybe retiring him. That's my guess, but I don't know. Okay, so maybe they should have made a short film about that. Yeah, maybe they will. <laughs> maybe they'll make a sequel or a spinoff. I think this universe is about to get really big if this movie makes money. I think that the Voight Kampf test in the first movie that they reference throughout this movie, I like they did away with it with the eyeball referencing, with the eye make it easier to find people. I thought that was a much better choice. But to replace it with this one, and they use it later on, obviously it comes back. I just didn't get it. I didn't think I needed this confusion so early. They started off so strongly with getting us back into this world to introduce this confusing issue with this baseline thing. Yes, they bring it back later for them to realize that he's grown. But I just didn't think this was the best way to do that for the character and for the audience, really. Because, yes, they needed some way to figure out that he's not the same replicant. But I just... I, this one really rubbed me the wrong way. I, I didn't like this scene at all. Here's what I would say, Brock. This movie is littered with little Easter eggs. I honestly would argue it's got better Easter eggs than it's got a story. And so, <laughs> really, that's why it's so bloated. It's so long because every little detail mattered to the director. And they're so fun to look at. But no, not everything will be explained. It begs you to go back and watch this movie again and again. I've seen it twice. The second time, it was less jarring. I imagine that'll be the more and more you look, the harder you look. I imagine you'll be rewarded for it. So I think all these mysteries will have some kind of payoff if you're willing to dive deep into this world. And I wasn't so bugged by the scene as you were, Brock. I don't know, maybe because I had just watched Blade Runner the day before this. A lot of this, again, is about going with a certain vibe and being in this claustrophobic and just very busy environment and just having questions yelled at you and told to repeat words. I got the vibe of it. Storytelling-wise, how does that work with a replicant? I don't know. But I like just the confusion and just being barraged. And yeah, I, I, I couldn't deal with that. You'd have to be a robot, a replicant to deal with that kind of stuff. And because he passes, he gets his bonus and he's going to go buy a present for his girlfriend. This is one of my favorite conceits of the story. I really love the idea 
This is the best part of the movie, is this subplot. AI that loves AI, that we progressed at this point in 2049, that a replicant could fall in love with a hologram, and there's a whole issue about the hologram wanting to be quote-unquote real so that she can touch him. Look, this is done way better in her. Yes. Spike Jones movie with Joaquin Phoenix. I was reminded a whole lot of that film, especially when we get to a sex scene in this film. But this is my favorite part of this movie is just, again, what does it have to do with the story? Most of this could have been cut probably, but I just love this idea of a replicant falling in love with an AI program. There's a scene later on where Joy is like, oh, you have four things that make you, you know, talking about DNA and I only have two, the ones and zero. I don't know, just a lot of great poetry, I'll put it, going on with these different versions of artificial intelligence interacting with each other and look just give me a joy and a k notebook romance in the blade runner world i probably would go with that because this is my favorite stuff i agree with you jacob that it could be excised from the movie and not much have an effect on the movie i do agree this movie is bloated and there are things in there that they feel they need to include that we obviously will be talking about how we don't really think they are needed but this love story is the central love story of the movie, parallels what they do with Deckard later on, and it helps Kay realize what he needs to do for Deckard. I mean, they make it connect. They have the prostitute scene later on with Mackenzie Davis. That helps Kay find the other replicant people. So they really find a way to use all this AI stuff that theoretically could be excised from this movie as not needed 100%. They did find a way to weave enough of it into enough of the other plot points in the movie that it makes it pay off. Do they need to spend so much time with it? Well, I agree. I really enjoyed the interaction. I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed all the underlying thematic stuff. But they probably didn't have to spend as much time with this holographic character as they did. But i kind of happy they did because when she's riding around with him investigating later on in the movie, I kind of like how that whole thing played out. I think there is a payoff to spending this much time up front. But yes, during the movie, I'm like, why are they spending so much time with this? I did enjoy the payoff. You know, they're two robots in love. It doesn't tug my heartstrings. I don't know if my PC or, or iPhone was crying. But, <laughs> but, but what it does is that if it's a detective story where it's a character working alone, he has someone to talk to. He's going to take her along in the case. They're going to work through it. And this case really begins right where it should. Act two begins where they always teach you. 27 minutes into this, there's been a break in the case. They've dug up that medical box, found a skeleton and black hair. It's determined it was 30 years old. I'm thinking Rachel. I mean, that puts it right at 2019. And I didn't think they would be getting Sean Young back into this movie. <laughs> but the interesting thing I hadn't guessed that I think is really cool here is that she died in childbirth and that there's evidence that Sapper's scalpel performed a C-section. There's a child of a robot out there, someone in the world. The LAPD's detective works real shoddy because thank goodness Kay was in the room when they're examining those bones. They're able to find the little, I guess, tick marks where you can see the scalpel hit the bone because this was a C-section. And I'm like, okay, we're going to have robots making robots in this film. That's going to be the conceit here is that they have found a way to replicate. I think a lot of the plot points are given very early on. There's not a whole lot of hard guessing that's going to happen in this film, but but the fact that it's up to Kay to zoom in on those bones even more, I mean, you have a, I'm guessing a forensic examiner there, this Coco. Yeah, it's Coco. I don't know why. <laughs> He played a weird guy in Prisoner by this director as well. So I guess you bring him back. He played a weird guy in The Dark Knight. So yeah, you, you bring this Coco character. You don't call him Coco. 
<laughs> I don't know. It's it's the future. Who knows what would be called in 2049? But yeah, the fact that he doesn't discover that there's a serial number that K has to keep zooming in and discover that it just seems weird. It, here's the thing: that that first Blade Runner feels like a small film. It's contained in L.A. It's about finding four replicants. This feels like it should be a much bigger film, and so it's weird that everything is contained within the LAPD here. Like this seems like a huge deal that you'd want to get the whatever government is left for the country involved in. Yeah, uh, Robert Wright is just bad at her job. I mean, I think the character's written that way in part, you know, <laughs> maybe the fact that she's human and you know, later she's going to try to hit on Kay and get drunk and yeah, she's just unprofessional. She takes him at his word. He's like, oh, I killed the child later, Has produces no evidence. She's like, okay, good. I mean, I think that she should be fired. If there's one thing clear, I don't know if they should kill this child, but I think she should be fired. But the point is, by having this bad boss, it allows Kay to go on his mission pretty much unsupervised, and so he can go where he wants, where the case will lead him. It first goes to the Tyrell building. I love that they kept the old building. I just gotta say I love coming back. It's now under new management. We now have Neander Wallace, Jared Leto, having no more screen time here than he did in Suicide Squad <laughs> as the Joker, who's now the one responsible for all AI. I thought he was going to be a big part of this from the trailers, and, you know, he won an Oscar for Christ's sake, but no one has been able to find a role for him that even matters. <laughs> I think that he has one good scene, and it comes here near this beginning, in which he kind of explains his whole MO. He has this lounge area. It kind of feels prenatal. It kind of feels in utero. Yeah, everything feels like it's in a womb because, yeah, it's that watery flexion everywhere. Yeah, there's a new model being born and he go, he monologues a whole lot the second time you understand <laughs> it more about he's basically pissed. We've colonized nine worlds and that's not enough. I need to make more robots and the secret died with Tyrell and with the data wipe. Again, I would ask, why don't the Nexus 8s also reproduce? Why can't Dave Bautista make his own miracle? I'm not even sure how miraculous it is if you only birthed one child and the woman died during labor. I, it doesn't seem to me like they're on the verge of this robots can produce themselves and end the slavery of mankind that they're talking up, but... I can get the anticipation. I can see the hope. I can see why it would cause chaos for robots to realize this. So you're saying that Wallace knows that this miracle did take place and he's looking for evidence of it or he knew it was possible to do it and he had no proof that it actually occurred? Yes. He screams, bring me the child to his assistant. And so it's her job to basically follow Kay as he looks for the child. But he knows about the child from some of the records. They're blurry records, but he doesn't know how to do it. Okay, I got the point that he sent the girl to follow Kay to get the information. I got all that, but it wasn't entirely clear to me what part he knew. And so you're, you're clarifying. Yeah, it's not clear. The character is not written clearly. I agree. He, I, does he kill this baby? Like, is he so mad that she can't produce what she's supposed to produce? Maybe someone should inseminate her first, but he just takes a scalpel <laughs> and stabs this poor woman when she pops out of the bag. Yeah, he feels her stomach where the womb would be, and I guess he's able to tell that she's barren just from that. So many great ideas here, not all of them very well realized. And does he just call them angels because that's what Tyrell did? I feel like that is a carryover, which I never get it. 
why there's all this talk about angels and ugh. it's Los Angeles as well. I mean, the city of angels, right? Yeah, I guess. Basically, instead of his Joker tats and gold teeth, he basically has robo cataracts and he, he babbles a little <laughs> bit. But Jared Leto is a very small part of this movie. I would also argue, much like Joy, he's almost not important. You could almost cut him out of this movie as well. It's, it's funny because what he wants is also what the replicants want. They want to find a way to reproduce. Everyone wants the same thing. He's not wrong to want replicants to be able to reproduce faster than he can make them because we need to get off of Earth. This is a horrible place to live. We're going to see what San Diego's like eventually, what Las Vegas is like. We don't want to be on this Earth. We want to go to more than nine planets. We want to get out of here. So it's a worthy objective. Mm -hmm. It's very much in line with the people that are fighting him. So it's kind of a strange conflict when we get to the end of this movie. But moving on, we're staying with the detective portion for the middle. Act two is all about Kay doing an investigation. He moves on for another glorified cameo with Edward James Olmos. Gaff is in a nursing home. I was glad to see Gaff, though. I wanted him to come back, at least for something. Does he make a sheep this time? A reference to the original Philip K. Dick book title? Yes. A question for you guys. If Deckard was a replicant, he would have known that, right? Okay, <laughs> I was going to wait till we got to Deckard, but here's my issue, because it's going to be confirmed Deckard is a replicant. Is it? I didn't think that's confirmed. No, I, I did not get that confirmation. All right, I thought they were definitely saying that. My, my question is, if Gaff was in on it, if the Chief was in on it, like how long had Deckard been around if he's a replicant? Had he been around for 20 years? Had he been around for two years and everyone was in on it at the LAPD? That is the most bothersome question for me if you're going to go with Scott's version that Deckard is a replicant. Like, did Gaff get paid off to play along? What worked for me in that original movie as a concept for a twist at the end makes less sense the more you mull it over, the more you even watch the old movie. It's like, well, I don't think that makes too much sense that Harrison Ford would actually be a replicant, but it introduced an interesting quagmire, a dilemma for the character. Here's something to consider. Maybe Edward James Olmos is also a replicant. Maybe that's why he makes an origami sheep. He had those weird funky eyes, so I, he's some version of it. You know, they treat cybernetics here not unlike the conversation we have about gender right now. You know, the fluidity between male and female and trans and all of that feels very much like there are some robots that are real, some robots that are holograms, some natural-born people, and now we have robots being born like people. So it's a very sticky world in 2049. It's not as simple as it used to be. I like they had the character here. I did not expect almost to be there at all. The sheep thing, I thought, Jacob, was just a complete reference to the original title of the book. I didn't really think they had any more deeper meaning to that besides they want to bring back origami and it's the sheep is the whole thing but if there's more to it and they're maybe trying to inference that he is also replicant i don't need that i think what we have here is just a nice way to bring this character back in what a nice little step pay a little fan service it was a nice surprise but if you're going to take some time that you don't need to in this movie as we've already discussed there are already a couple of things we thought maybe could not be needed this is one that's definitely maybe not needed, but I'm happy is there. It's certainly nostalgic, but I also think it introduces an idea I hadn't thought before, which is maybe all of that workforce was the Nexus 7. We know the Nexus 6 lived only four years. We know the Nexus 8 lived forever. How can Olmos and Harrison Ford still be alive? Well, maybe they're Nexus 7. Right. I understand what you're saying there, but I don't think it's necessary, but I do think it's food for thought. I think that's all this movie is. I mean, I'm going to make the argument. <laughs> I don't think the plot's very good. I think
think that if you spend time looking at the little details, you're watching it correctly. If you try to piece the mystery together, well, it's going to get sticky. Case in point, Kay moves on. He's going to burn down the farm. You know, he's hiding all evidence. Screw this movie for this one scene where, yeah, Kay goes back to Batista's protein farm and he's looking at a piano. Remember, Deckard loved the piano and there is a key that isn't upright with the rest of them. It's not level. I'm like... Oh, uh, you, you had to make a Total Recall 2012 reference, didn't you? With the piano key giving it all away. <laughs> Screw this movie for that. <laughs> right. And so we introduced this idea of this picture. There's a woman holding a baby. I think we're meant to think that that is the robot who birthed the child. But we also know that it's Rachel, so it's not a very good disguise. We will also see that woman in a scene just before that at the automat telling a bunch of hookers to start tailing Kay. Except it gets really confusing because we established the date for the birth of this child is 61021. It's carved into the base of the tree. They established the woodcarver to be Deckard. But Deckard will later claim he was not there for the birth of this child. So I don't know why he would have carved onto a horse 61021 either. This woman that supposedly delivered the child knew Bautista from the war in which she lost an eye, but in this photograph, she has both her eyes. I'm finding a lot of problems here in this mystery. <laughs> I think they messed up. I think this is rewriting, honestly. And I think on some level, the studio was thinking, we don't care how you solve this mystery as long as you can get us to this storyline. I think this is what they care about, that they're this robot revolution in which this one-eyed replicant is going to lead a big battle that we can play out in future sequels. So that was the one-eyed replicant that we'll see later on talking about a revolution hiring the prostitutes i thought that was love wallace's replicant no that Fraza is the one in the picture oh okay she just comes out of nowhere at the end so i wasn't really thinking of her during all these scenes it's not well integrated as a mystery i agree i thought when she came in at the end she was setting up something for later i also thought Stuart. i didn't think she lost the eye in the war i don't know where you got that what i thought was because she's a replicant and she can only be identified by having the number on her eyeball that she pulled her eye out so she could not be identified oh i don't know i know that they met in the war and I maybe I just make an assumption because I watched that anime and I watched robots blowing each other's heads up. But okay, that you're right. That makes sense. I agree, Brock. I don't know if it makes sense though, Stuart, because then you just look for the people with the missing eye and their replicants. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> makes more sense. She wears a lot of cool sunglasses, so no one will ever catch her. Anyway, my point is sloppy, right? That these scenes are butted up against each other, that we just happen to have this hooker now tailing him. And at the same time, yeah, you mention that there is this Wallace assistant who he had this talk with down in the paper file room and she's kind of jealous she wants to be the best replicant and she hates ryan gosling basically because he might be her equal and she likes to think of herself being top of the line is that what it is because i feel like when he brought in that serial number for rachel that's what triggered love getting involved with this whole storyline is like they somehow knew rachel was the one who gave birth so when he brings in that and triggers everything you know we see her take over in the record room and show him the old voight comp test and all that that to me i thought she was working with wallace like oh someone's finally triggered that serial number let's tail them and find out if we could find this child yeah it's why she's following him. and how she's following him is that k is using their product he's using the emanator and so as long as he holds on 
to Joy that she can follow that antenna signal. So she's able to follow this and she's able to even save his ass later when he goes to San Diego and she can like wipe out all of these scavengers. That's how, see, I really thought she was involved with the prostitutes and we see the one like place a tracker on Kay. And so I thought that was how, but no, okay. Yeah, it's sloppy. There's too many characters and how they're defined in the story, why they're doing what they're doing, not really well articulated. I blame the script more than the direction. Again, I think the director is focusing on what really matters, the detail work. Again, this movie is lovely to look at in every moment. Every time there is a car flying above a cityscape and just a loud, brassy noise, I'm in love with this film. (laughs) When I have to contemplate the plot, I agree, Stuart. Like, I'm less in love. I also think the music is really good in this. I mean, a a lot of it is just sort of electronic droning, but it's really effective. And they occasionally work in the Vangelis at just the right moment. They tease the old soundtrack. Did he not come back for this? No, he did not come back for this. Oh, okay. Yeah, and there's another piece of music in here that I thought the Wallace tone is Peter and the Wolf. Oh, yeah. Like their windows chime whenever you start up your computer. Exactly. It's <laughs> Peter and the Wolf. It's a riff from Peter and the Wolf. And I'm wondering, why Peter and the Wolf? What's that story about what's going on? It could be very simply that, as Stuart pointed out earlier, instead of an Asian or Japanese influence in this time, it's the Russian influence. And of course, Peter and the Wolf is by Provokiev, that Russian composer. It could be something as simple as that. But I was wondering, does it tie in the story of Peter and the Wolf going on a hunt? Peter's going on a wolf hunt and he's being tracked by the wolf and he's all these little friends around him. Is that relevant or an allegory of some sort? for this movie and I haven't thought about it in depth enough to give you a solid answer I'm thinking no I don't know if there's someone that goes with every animal from Peter and the Wolf I took it as simple as it's a hunt and there's a hunt going on here I'm glad I don't have to write that paper but uh, yes I believe that probably somewhere some film student is like yes I have my thesis that's Arnie would write that in college as you would say So remember I said before that they find a way to work joy into the plot as much as possible. This is a great example of what I was talking about. But Jacob, you just said about the flying cars and stuff. I'm less impressed by that. When I read a comic book, I love the artwork that's in a comic book, but I need a good story. Otherwise, I get bored. Artwork for artwork is beautiful, but when you're telling a story, the purpose of a comic book is to have artwork and story, right, combined into something cohesive. I need a better story to go along with the artwork for me to have a good experience. Here, yes, the visuals are outstanding. The cinematography, outstanding. Everything looks awesome. I said before, the CGI and the practical combined beautifully, but I am on the edge of my seat, quote-unquote, trying to figure this plot out the entire time. And and we're all talking about how there are holes and things like that, and it's not okay. I think I enjoyed the plot a little bit more than you two did, but I was really trying to piece it all together the entire time. Because if I was just looking at the visuals, every time it took the time to show us another beautiful visual, I got a little pissed off. Because this movie's two hours and 45 minutes long (laughs) because of those shots! Those shots were the best thing in the film because this plot is clunky. And we're only at hour one. I want to point out when we get to San Diego, a beautiful beach town no more. I got to say, San Diego is a (laughs) lovely town if you want to go see the water. Now it is literally a dump. Yeah, talking (laughs) about the plot here, we see Kay, he looks at the DNA records trying to find where this child is. We find out, oh, there's two identical sets, a boy and a girl. And I swore, this is how I thought the plot was going to go. We're going to find the girl and actually find out it's Kay who's (laughs) the child. But no, they're going to play it the other way with our expectations but yeah I do. sorry for all those who live in san diego but it's a dump now a glorious dump again beautiful in its wastrel quality i say see this movie in imax if you're going to see it because they've specially formatted it as such 
You know, what's kind of funny to me is movies started out being square and then they turned rectangle to combat television and now IMAX has turned it back into a square. If you see it in IMAX, you see it more in a square format. So you get a lot more of footwork if you're interested in people's shoes in the future, you see that, but also for these <laughs> landscape shots. They are the best way to see these landscapes. The 3D, I feel like I only noticed it when we see the holograms. I saw that Joy was more transparent in the 3D cut. I noticed that quality more. But otherwise, I go IMAX. And I saw this in regular 2D, regular screen. It still looked great. But getting back to that plot, this is where it started to bug me. Because when we go to San Diego, we're going to have this whole scene where someone's shooting down Kay and then love. She has Google Glass on and she's firing missiles to get rid of that. Like, I guess, again, if you got a couple of hours and you, you need to fill up five minutes with some establishing world building stuff, that's cool. Two hours and 45 minutes, you could have cut this right here. It doesn't play any part into the plot. I get it. San Diego's a dump. Let's move on to the orphanage. But I have to say that this set design, this art direction was unbelievable. I mean, this was real stuff. He's walking on these giant... It was amazing the, the way they really made this set. They could have easily done that CGI. And obviously when he goes over the crest and sees the two houses where the orphanage is, obviously to me that was a CGI shot. But the rest of it wasn't. Then you go right when he walks into that giant dome. That was practical. Or if it wasn't practical, they fooled me. And it was wonderful how they actually made this set shine. But Brock, you said you're here for the plot, though. What, what does all this fighting have to do with the plot? I know. But, well, it, what has to do with the plot is that Love is making sure he survives to get the answers that she can steal. But why they put an action scene in there is because they need an action scene at this point in the movie. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't begging for an action scene. This is a detective noir story. I'm going with let's discover the mystery. And here's what I would say. I mean, the first Blade Runner is very strangely paced and things don't come together. It's, it's, I'm not going to get overly critical because I don't think that that's where the strength of this series lies. I will try to appreciate about what it does well and forgive its sins that it continues to have. But I would say this is also just not good detecting. So basically Ryan Gosling just walks in and punches someone in the face and they hand him a book that doesn't have pages in it. I, that's a good detective figures things out. This character just kind of walks from place to place. There's a way to show that the character is smart. And I don't feel like we're getting to like Ryan Gosling's K because he's not figuring it out in a clever way. We don't think he's particularly good at his job. He's just strong. He can just take a punch and throw a punch. And his conclusions are wrong, ultimately. <laughs> so Yes, that too. <laughs> yes, but you can forgive him. Now we get into the part where, okay, I think we're meant to ask at the end of this, could he potentially be human? It's an inverse of the original where could the Blade Runner be a replicant? Now could the replicant Blade Runner be a human? Well, doesn't he have a full set of memories? Is it just that he has amnesia and only remembers putting a wooden horse in a furnace? Surely he would know his entire story. Whether it's a real or artificially manufactured history, he would know where he came from. Well, I don't remember being given birth to, Stuart. As a child, you have very select memories. Well, no, obviously those first couple years are not there. I don't mean to imply that. But he should know whether he was ever at this orphanage or not. I mean, that should be something he would know. I mean, he has that memory of being there. No, but he doesn't know that he was there until he sees the boiler room, is my point. How could he not recognize the orphan taskmaster? How can he not remember how he became a Blade Runner? 
because I realized this was where that dream came from or that memory came from as soon as he saw all the bald kids because that was something I remembered from that memory he told. But doesn't he remember their name? I mean, like, how could he not know that he wasn't here and grew up here? Why is it an isolated single memory that he can't extrapolate upon? He will tell his boss this one memory of hiding the horse and yes, it is still there, but why doesn't he remember all the slave labor he did and how he impressed them and got to be on the police force and all of that? That's He's not an amnesiac. We're told in the first Blade Runner that the reason they've been given memories, and that was a, a big deal with Rachel, is she had these photos of her with her mom. That So she thought she... It was so they could develop more human emotions, which has failed with Kay. <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot of emotion here. Right. And they're not supposed to have emotions. Get too many emotions and you fail your baseline test. But again, was he given memories or memory? I mean, it seems like he just got one memory and now he's trying to figure out how maybe he could be the same person that hid the horse. And so they go down this path. I think you're right to get back to where we started here is that I think they're definitely going with that for 30 years people have been talking about whether Deckard's a human or a replicant. I think they're absolutely trying to play with the audience who knows that if Ryan Gosling thinks he's a replicant but actually is a human. And they had me going for a little while, not very long, but a little while on this because of this whole thing with the horse. And I think all of this is here and how he reacts to it and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a really fun thing to do for the fans. I would think this is more fan service than actual plot because of where it ends up later on eventually turns into fan service. But I thought it was a really clever and cute idea to play with the reversal and whether or not the memory thing, Stuart, I think if you get analytical about it, you're absolutely right. It does fall apart instantaneously. But when I'm watching the movie, I don't have time to think about only has one memory. I'm thinking about, okay, they're trying to make this connection. But again, if he was human and he got stabbed by a scalpel by Dave Bautista throwing him down, tell me a human being could take down Dave Bautista. Just, just to me, that is, it's a nice idea. I think it might have worked in a different draft. I don't think it's well demonstrated in the final cut. Yeah, I mean, Batista took him through a wall. I don't think people are going to be discussing if Kay's a human for the next 30 years. I'll just put it that way. It's something that <laughs> never crossed my mind. It's just, again, maybe because it's because of Gosling's performance that he is so robotic throughout this entire film. But I just, I never thought that, oh, maybe he is human. I, I just figured he is this secret messianic robot child that they've had to hide even from himself. So he has to slowly discover it. Maybe he's Nick Cage because he certainly goes uncaged in his next scene he wants to know if memories can be implanted and when he gets the answer that this horse thing happened he totally flips out in a hilarious way to me yeah we get this cool again where did those implants come from we meet the dream maker or the memory maker i guess is this woman a bubble girl <laughs> yeah Boy in the bubble. She has an immune deficiency, and so she's in this locked room, and this really cool, you know, at first I thought it was like a camera she's taking pictures of bugs with, but no, it's a cool little spindle thing where she could just change, like, how the antennas look on a bug, and she just sits there and creates memories. He goes to her to see if they recycle memories from other people. And this is where I'm getting a whole lot of, well, the original movie, J.F. Sebastian, remember that was a character with Methuselah syndrome, and thus he couldn't go off-world. She believes she's sick. I don't actually think she is when we find out who she really is. I think she was just told a lie so that she would stay in this room and was very sad and filled it up with memories. But I also think that this is where Villeneuve is really working off Arrival. A lot of Arrival involves human beings contacting and communicating with an extraterrestrial race 
through glass and learning a language here. And this whole dialogue we have about whether the memory is real or not, it just felt like a holdover from that movie. And again, this is where when we find out who this Dr. Anna Staline is, did she put that memory in K to kick off this whole investigation eventually at some point for some future robot revolution? Because you're not supposed to put in real memories, but she has put in one of her memories here. She said earlier that the, the best memories are based in real life, right? So this time, maybe she got tired or lazy or just because she wanted to share this memory because she's so isolated. Maybe that's what really simple as it is. Whether or not she did it intentionally to kick something off, Jacob, that seems very highfalutin. But who knows? Stuart, to answer your other question a second ago, other thing you brought up i had the same thought does she actually have immune deficiency or is she told that to stay in this room and once we learn who she is and basing that i think since decker's a human and rachel is not i think she actually might have missing some stuff in her body in her chemistry because half her parent didn't have everything it needed to produce, right? She's a miracle child. The replicant, the first time replicant made a baby. So maybe she actually does have a deficiency because she's not fully human, not fully replicant. That's my thought on it. You're right. That's And that's a good theory. But she was able to live outside for eight years. And then all of a sudden they're like, nope, we got to go. And she believes that her parents left. I mean, how nice is that? That like her parents were like, yeah, we're going to go off world and have a great life. But you have everything you need here alone in this lab. Enjoy yourself. It's like Ray in The Force Awakens. We're going to leave you here. <laughs> and yeah, why is it illegal to use real memories? I presume because, again, society is trying to build that wall between human and android. If androids are having human memories, that makes them too much like us. I sense that that's what they're getting at here. I think all these ideas are really cool. I really like this scene. But again, I do think Villeneuve is playing off things he's done before. And they're teasing a twist that I'm not sure totally works for me. You're saying Gosling goes full cage here. When he goes back to that baseline test, he fails it. He's lost it now. Yes, exactly. And so I assume he is anguished because he knows that he'll be hunted, that he can no longer be the good servant that he wants to be, that he can't stay in his apartment with his beautiful wife, although he doesn't need to stay there anymore. They're portable, conveniently. But his boss interprets it that he's just emotionally strung up because he killed the real child. I can't believe she wouldn't want video documentation. <laughs> in the future, we don't have cameras? Yeah, they, for Batista, he had to scan an eye. Yeah, he's got that drone on his car that could film things. Yeah, I mean, we have body cameras on cops now. Tell me that she <laughs> wouldn't want to see him kill this child. They never turn him on, though, at the at the right time. That, that Maybe that's what Kay did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And then there's this whole thing about replicants can't lie. Maybe she thinks they can't lie. I, was that an Asimov rule? Is that how I... Where's that coming from? And later, one will lie and say, I'm going to lie and say, I'm going to kill you. And, and you struck first. I think going back to that, what's established in that short when Wallace reintroduces the replicants is that they have to obey your commands. If you tell them to tell the truth, they have to tell the truth, which is going to be weird later when Joshi and Love faces off. Yeah, again, it makes that scene not work, which is a pretty good scene, but it doesn't make sense. If replicants can't lie, then I'm not sure what's happening anymore. Again, the sense of rules, there's too many different iterations. There's the Tyrell models of various lengths and abilities, and now there's the, all these new angels, and we don't know what they can do. And all we know is that love resents Kay for being, I guess, 
guess, on par with her. And she wants to prove that he's wrong. And once he decides to run, she is going to have to go after his boss to find him. I wonder if part of the problem is, I don't want to generalize, but filmmaking today. I mean, you go back to that Blade Runner, which, again, the studio made him put in all that narration to make things clear. But when you look at Ridley Scott's original vision in the final cut, it's very ambiguous. And it's just a lot of world building. And there's you got to read inferences on people's faces and the way they react to things. Here, I feel like they try to explain a lot of stuff because that's just how movies are today. We're going to explain every little jot and tittle to you. But it just makes it work less. If this was more ambiguous, if it was more just people giving strange looks to each other, like like that original Blade Runner, maybe we wouldn't have all these questions. We wouldn't get caught up in the plot so much. Yeah, I mean, it would have been worth trying, but they're keeping as much of that tone as they can. Times have changed. Attention spans have shortened. But the movie's gotten longer. <laughs> but it's filled with more detail. I would argue more things happen. There's more fight scenes. There's more action, even though there's not a whole lot of action than there is in the original movie. And I think that they have adjusted the temperature in the room for the tastes of today's audiences. I would agree with that as well. I think they did a lot of things to combat uh, the issues the first movie had, but at the same time, still have the same kind of pacing, tonal stuff going on. I think they complemented it both ways to the middle. So Kay has to go on the run, but first he's got to have a three-way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, straight from her. <laughs> And I love her. I just want to say one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. This movie can't possibly keep up with all the ideas that were going on in that film. It's a tremendous film. I agree that we've seen the scene before, but I thought it worked. I thought it was very tender. I kind of liked how they didn't line up completely. I, I thought the detail of how they did this particular scene in this particular movie and why was wonderful. I don't care that I saw it before. A again, give me Blade Notebook. I'm totally into this romance between a robot and a computer. Like, that is what works best in this film. I think, again, a scene do you really need it to go on as long as it does? No, but it's a great scene. I'm glad it does. Agreed. Yeah, that's exactly why you retain it. It absolutely should not come now. He is on the run. He has 48 hours before they make him take the test again. And then who knows what will happen. And instead, he's going to waste a whole evening doing this. The only reason to keep it is because it's so cool. And because it allows Mariette to put a tracker on him. And they're going to come in and save his ass when he gets to Vegas. Exactly. But we all agree. Great scene. So... <laughs> There you go. But let's get to it, man. Let's get to the, the meat and potatoes. It took us long <laughs> enough to get here. Let's get there. Let's get to Vegas. Are they going to Vegas or are they going to Burning Man? There's all these giant <laughs> statues of naked ladies. Yeah, yeah all, all of a sudden Kubrick's taken over and designed Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> and a beehive, an aviary for some reason. I guess Harrison Ford is just subsisting on whiskey and honey. <laughs> Yeah, because he's a replicant. He doesn't need no food. <laughs> he's growing bees for something. Yeah. Here's my question. We're going to go to Vegas, and they've given us like little subtitles for every place we've gone. We're in LA. We're in San Diego. I do wonder if this was a last-minute decision to pull that and not make it totally explicit that it's Vegas until later on because of the tragedy that just happened there like last week. It does feel weird. You go to Vegas where a dirty bomb has gone off and totally wiped out the place. It's just bad timing, I guess. It's really bad timing, and I, I don't think there's anything they could do to change that. But yeah, they never use the words Las Vegas, so I guess if you want to ignore it, it could be, I guess it could be Reno. <laughs> <laughs> that already is depopulated. You do not want to go there. So... Vegas is abandoned, a dirty bomb went off, the radiation levels are high. Why are there glasses on every table as if everything was interrupted midstream and there's no 
bodies, but the buildings and the glasses and everything else was able to stay. I was confused on why everything seemed like people abandoned them mid-drink, mid-plates. Everything was set up. Yes. Thank you, Brock. Back to my ongoing monologue <laughs> about why this movie makes no sense. Yes. One dirty bomb, who knows how long ago, presumably sometime around the blackout. So it's been, yeah, 27 years or what have you. And now radiation levels are normal. The drone even says so. Nobody's come back. Nobody. They're afraid of getting stung by bees. There's bees all over. <laughs> That's not my question, though. My question is... Yeah, no. And what happened in the original bodies? Well, they vaporize. I mean, I don't know. Then the glass doesn't, though? Yeah, the robots clean them up. They rotted. I, you know, I guess Rick Deckard has just been mopping up a whole <laughs> lot of cadavers for the last 30 years. But he couldn't be bothered to take care of his own wife's cadaver. This is a very strange backstory for Rick Deckard. Not what I would expect. Rick Deckard being, uh, says booby traps all over the casino. He wants to be left alone. He may or may not have a replicant dog, which, Jacob, if we're not going to talk about if Kay is a replicant or not for 30 years, maybe we'll talk about if this dog is replicant <laughs> for 30 years. It likes the booze. I don't know. Do dogs like whiskey? Yeah, it's a replicant. Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> it's, of course, it's a replicant. Nothing survives. And besides, only replicant dogs like Johnny Walker Black. Real dogs like Johnny Walker Blue. <laughs> I, I loved that they had... The bar was fully stocked. I loved that he's living there by himself. I liked a lot of this stuff, but my main question was, he holed up here? Yeah. He's here? Why here? Because the radiation was so high, no one else would dare look for him. But then how is he surviving there? Etc. 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 I can understand that the plan would be... All right, you go have the child and I'll lead them away. But there was no plan to ever get back together, ever. Like, that was it. I'm just going to go to Vegas and set off a dirty bomb and then hang out here and drink Johnny Walker with a <laughs> robo-dog? I don't know if Deckard set off the dirty bomb, but I feel he went there because humans wouldn't go there because of that dirty bomb. Yeah, they give some lip service that he had to totally be separate so they couldn't torture him or read his memories or whatever to find out where this child was if it was ever made known. So he's totally gone away, but he's carving animals and he knows, like you said, Stuart, he knows the birth date to put on. You know what? With that wood, we're told earlier, you know, when they have that wood investigated that it's real wood, it's so valuable. You could buy a real horse with it. Like, I don't know, go to Singapore, go to Seoul, go somewhere cool. Get out of Vegas. Where did he get the wood? It's all from the tree. He's still using that same parts of the tree to make the wood carvings he's doing here. There's no trees in Vegas. I mean, I, again, none of this really makes any sense. It's very poetic. It's very evocative in the moment. It honestly feels like every interview Harrison Ford has been given these days. It's, he's cranky and he's just cantankerous and he's just like, ah, it's what I had to do and I'm not going to justify myself to you. All right. <laughs> I know it was a joke when the trailer came out, but Harrison Ford, man, he couldn't put on more than a t-shirt and some sweats. <laughs> he's totally dressed down in this. It's very unglamorous comeback for Deckard. Not the cool jacket that he had before. Question for you both. Could we have lived with it was his body down there? We meet Sean Young. I mean, did it have to be Harrison Ford? I know he's an icon. What's he bringing by coming back? I think you bring him back because of the debate that's been going on for 30 years, thanks to Ridley Scott. Like, is he a replicant? That's what people want to know. And it's also Harrison Ford. No one's coming to the theaters for Sean Young. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. No one wants to go on set with Sean Young. Mm-mm. Hide the crazy glue. Yeah, seriously. So yeah, I think it's a foregone conclusion also that you would have Harrison Ford here. If they had him in the ground 
and said he was dead, it would reek to me of, oh, they couldn't get Harrison Ford. I would be taken out of it completely. To have him here, even though I was waiting an hour and 45 minutes for him to show up, and he's all over the stinking posters, I think that he's here for this scene, for the first time we see him, is great. Whether or not he needs to stick around for the rest of the movie until the end, uh, I don't know if they needed him to be around the rest of the time he's there, except for that ending. So, I'm happy he's here to answer your question. Yes, a hundred times yes. Harrison Ford over Sean Young. <laughs> but do we need him in the movie at all? Could he have just done an Edward Jade almost kind of part? The answer is probably. I like the fight. I like the chemistry. I, I believe that Ryan Gosling could be his child. It will end up not being the case, I think. But yes, I think that there is a reason to have him here. What I would argue is, what does he have to live for? Why would he risk being captured? Why wouldn't he kill himself if this was all he was going to do? Well, yeah, the, the rest of this film, again, I want Harrison Ford to come back in a Blade Runner film. But what they do with him, this ends up feeling very fan fiction-y to me. It's just like, it seems like, oh, this is what you would do with a Blade Runner sequel. We, we've taken an hour and 45 minutes to get there. Like, I've enjoyed this, like, we're just building off of the world of Blade Runner with this totally different Ryan Gosling character. But now we're really going to tie this in as a direct sequel where, yeah, it's going to become all about Deckard and what he's been doing. And it's now going to become his movie? I don't know that it becomes his movie, but it could be his sequel. I mean, I definitely feel like he is given the the range to do whatever he wants at the end of this movie. But right now, yeah, it just feels like a way of answering unresolved questions, most of which they don't answer. He doesn't know his child. He, I think, says, I was not there when it happened. I left them. I taught them how to hide. And then I ran away. And that was my role. And then maybe some intermediary got them the wooden horse when he found out what the birth date was. And he carved it in there. And someone carved it in his signature on the tree. I don't know. There's, there's no explaining some of this. But, all right. If he doesn't know anything... Why is he of value to Wallace? Why are they storming in here and threatening to torture him? I assumed, and maybe you guys could give me your explanations, because I never questioned if Deckard wasn't a replicant in this film. I just took it as that's the way it is. But to me, that would seem like Wallace, he needs to reverse engineer either Rachel or Deckard, or if there is other replicants that could procreate, he's got to reverse engineer him to find out the secret here. So I feel like, yeah, he wants to get this replicant, Deckard, and figure out how can he procreate. Okay. Or, conversely, maybe he can use the DNA that the human Deckard has, who is the only person who has ever been able to combine with a replicant to make a baby. Maybe he has, like, super semen and is able to... <laughs> to do it. I mean, it sounds funny to say it that way, but I don't think the answer is definitive, Jacob. I don't think they're saying two replicants had a baby. I said a replicant had a baby. And I think it's very distinct that they don't make it clear it's two replicants. They don't want to ruin people's original conception of the movie. They know that that is everyone's favorite part, whether you believe Deckard is a human or a robot. And so to answer that is to kill someone's dream. And, and they're just not going to do that. I think that's wise not to answer it. But here we are in this moment. And so why is he a celebrity? You're right. It makes more sense if he's a robot because then they can do more things off world to interrogate him, I suppose. Instead, Love's going to just come in another action scene, kick some ass and haul him away back to Wallace. Which then the movie does become Harrison Ford's movie for about 20 minutes. So it, it changes the point of view character, even though Gosling does follow him eventually. It does change 
the point of view of the movie for a solid, what, 15, 20 minutes. It also ends the love story with Joy, which I found wonderfully... It was probably more heartbreaking on paper than it did appear in the movie. Yeah, I wish I felt emotion for these robots. Like, when Roy Batty died, mm. damn, I'm a broken down man. Like, that is a, an epiphany there. Right. Here, it's just like, oh, I like that scene. It's a shame she's not coming back for the rest of the film. We can be sad for him without feeling it, is what I would say. I don't feel his pain, but I understand that it would be very painful if you didn't think it was a great idea to stick all of her information, data, soul, if you will, into a wand so that then something like this could happen. They maybe could have played this at a different moment. I think maybe this could have come in the climax. I don't know what you get by breaking Kay at this point and having him lose his love before the climax. Well, actually, Stuart, this is his climax because the next 20 minutes is Deckard. Yeah, well, eventually he's going to get found by the replicant rebels and they're going to explain to him, oh, you thought you were a special snowflake? Oh, no, 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 millennial. You're nothing. (laughs) There's all this imagery of snowflakes falling on hands and I do wonder if they're playing off of that often used derisive comment about special snowflakes. He thought he was cool and he's not. I don't know what we get by learning that Kay is not Deckard's magic child. What is he then? I mean, I guess all that's said is that he is a different part of the puzzle. Is he a clone? Did they make some weird clone of the child? Is he the backup program? I mean, is he just a human being that they stuck memories inside of? Can you do that? Brainwashed him? Is he just an average replicant that, for reasons unknown, they, or for accidental reasons, ended up with the child's memories? Yeah, you know, Batista set something up early on that it's so easy for Kay to kill other replicants because he's never seen a miracle. He doesn't know about life. And so I keep waiting for that moment. Again, that that Roy Batty moment with Kay where like we revealed something special about him. And I don't think we ever get it. Yeah, and I think that he's having the inverse of Deckard because his fall continues. After they tell him you're not special, he goes and wanders around and sees an advertisement for Joy and realizes that these are just pre-programmed things that she says to him. What a day. You look like a good Joe. She had nicknamed him Joe. He thought that he was special to her. Oh no, she says that to all the guys. Again, this is someone finding out that they are nothing. Which would be a cool inverse of the hero's journey. Like, I could go with some real out there artsy film like that. I just don't think they accomplished that if, if that's what they're going for in 2049. Well, I don't know if he'll be part of a sequel or if there will be one, but it certainly begs, yeah, it's new territory. I don't know what you do with a character that realizes that they are absolutely worthless. Well, I, I got the impression he died at the end of the movie, so... Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think you killed yes. them off. I think that might have been what happened, but again, he has so many injuries here. He got uh, something impaled in him in Vegas, and then he's going to get shot, and I don't, you know... It, again, if he's human, boy, I want his DNA. He's pretty special to me, because he takes a licking and keeps on ticking. But back to Deckard, I mean, something I didn't see coming, the tease, the opposite of what they do to Joy by taking away Kay's love, is they bring back Rachel, at least through the magic of CGI. I do not think Sean Young was contacted to be on this set. (laughs) Do they pull a Peter Cushing here? I know for a fact there was a model who was on set, and I know they went and looked at old footage to model the way that Sean looked in 1982. I see her credited in the credits. That might just be out of a courtesy. I do not think she filmed. 
Well, they use old footage of her. Yeah, they use old footage of her. I think what they did was they had a model on set, and then they may have superimposed old footage. I don't think they did a Peter Cushing, Carrie Fisher, Rogue One thing on her. Oh, I do. Yeah, I think that might be what it is. Yeah, no, I could tell this wasn't Sean Young. I, I'm like, oh, they got someone that kind of looks like her. They're going for that look again, but it didn't seem like an exact replicant of her. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite right. Yeah. And Deckard thinks that, too. She has green eyes, so, you know, bang, shoot her in the head. Well, no, I thought the close-up of her was Sean Young from old footage. The close-up wasn't? Mm-mm. No, no, it's definitely not old footage. It's not superimposed. That is a CGI creation. No, 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 no. When she's walking towards Deckard, when she had the full body shot or the three-quarter shot, I thought they might have put a superimposed face on her. But when she had the, the shot to show us the brown eyes... And when they look at each other, I thought that was just old footage. No, that looked CGI to me. Oh, interesting. I could not tell it was CGI. Now, here's the other issue I had with this movie a lot of the times, and we haven't talked about this at all yet, is that, especially like in Vegas, it was so dark, and especially coming up in this scene when they do the lighting thing because of the water and the room with Jared Leto and Harrison Ford talking, oftentimes it gets very, very dark. And I know they're going for mood. I understand Deacons loves playing with these kind of things, especially like when we saw Skyfall. He did that with a great scene in Hong Kong. But the problem here was, especially in Vegas, when they were having the gunfight and during the fist fight, I had so much trouble telling where Gosling was when he was hiding. I had so much trouble telling what was what going on here as well because it was too dark too atmospheric and it took away so maybe what's going on here Stuart is because the lighting was playing tricks with my eyes so much I couldn't tell it was a CGI face of Sean Young but I didn't get that impression at all I thought they just used old footage in those close-up shots I'm not gonna complain uh, one bit about the visual look of this film I, I had no problem with any of the choices Deacon makes I you know will repeat that I am a huge fan of that cinematographer and I really hope this gets him his Oscar I mean he still doesn't have an Oscar Stuart I'm not complaining at all the man is a genius. I loved the composition. I loved what he was doing. I love how everything was shot. I'm saying in certain times in this movie, the lighting was off for me and it took me out of it. It was so dark and I understand the going for atmosphere, but then there's just dark. It's just poorly lit or badly lit or a bad choice in certain aspects. And it kept on coming up enough for me to comment on it here. But overall, his work is exceptional here. I'm not disagreeing with you. The man needs an Oscar for a variety of things that he was done in the past for his body of work alone. Yeah. I am not disagreeing with you there, but I, I thought some choices that were poor on lighting that when they can go with great choices in one part of the scene and then it gets too dark and they get back in there, it just was really playing with me. I also saw it in 3D. I had the glasses on. It might have been part of that as well. 3D does project a darker image. Yes. Speaking of bad choices, this has to be a rewrite for the climax, right? They did not conceive the ending will be great. You'll be in a car in the water, huh? I don't understand this. Where are they going? They say we're taking you home to Deckard, but what is this? I, I think it's another Abu Ghraib allegory taken from prisoners or something when Hugh Jackman has to torture <laughs> Paul Dano. But yeah, the idea that we're going to beat it out of Deckard what he knows. Guess what, guys? He doesn't know shit. <laughs> but yeah, they, they're taking him away. And because Robin Wright had made a metaphor about a wall keeping different types apart, they're going to stage this at the dam where the wall is between the water and L.A. and... You know what? It looks amazing. It's very evocative to watch the drowning and the fighting and all of this. I am transported by the beauty of it all. But this feels very, very small for a climax to what we've been building to. 
That's what I'm saying. That first Blade Runner, it was a small story, Capture Five Robots. This one feels like it should be huge, that there are robots having babies and we got to alarm the government. But the fact that, like, the LAPD, like, they don't have cameras. They can't see Love walking around killing Coco and killing Joshi. Like, <laughs> where... <laughs> How many times did she walk into the police station and kill someone? I agree. This is outrageous. Yeah. Where are the stakes in this film? Like, I feel like it should be a bigger film. It's a longer film. It, it's on a more grandiose scale. We're going to more locations. But the story feels very small that it's just going to be love versus K at the end of this movie. And that that's it. That's the climax. And it's funny because there are certain scenes when Harrison Ford is in the background. He's locked to this chair in one of those flying cars. He looks bored. <laughs> like, you, you're not supposed to be looking at him. But I looked at him once in a while and like just the faces he's making as these two are fighting yeah i agree it's strange you have harrison ford yeah his part in the climax is to drown is not to fight yeah. harrison ford not fighting in the climax what kind of world are we living in but i have to say i would mention earlier the terminator and in the third terminator movie there was the terminatrix they called her right and love very much reminded me of a terminator and this scene reminded me of how they finish a terminator movie they have a big battle scene at the end. Instead of a foundry, they have it in the water. So it's the T-800 fighting the TX in the end of Terminator 3. That's what I got here and why it's supposed to be in the water. That's that. I agree with both of you. It wasn't a very futuristic scene to have them fighting, a drowning at the same time as fighting each other. I just don't know what the stakes are in this scene. Again, you look at that first Blade Runner and what's interesting, it's a lot of your hero, Deckard, running away from Roy Batty. In that and coming to a realization at the end as Roy dies here it's a fight scene because I guess that's how you end movies these days is you have a big fight and someone wins but what am I supposed to take away here you end the chase Jacob you end the chase the chase ends now that love is gone that Deckard and Kay are able to stop being hunted and stop being chased for the time being they have a definite end that the threat is over and they can go on clearly the threat's not over Jared Leto's still around he could have some other person come out and, and do this all over again Again. But for now, with her gone, that's what they're trying to say. That's what I got from it, Jacob, that this chase is now over. Well, here's what I think it could have been. I feel like maybe in one version, somebody's idea, there are two screenwriters. They have the old screenwriter, Hampton Fancher, came back to do some version of this. And then they have a new guy who's worked with Ridley Scott on Covenant and Green Lantern and other things that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> and maybe it's nice to think that all the bad ideas are his. I don't know. But I'm not going to say whose fault it is. But I think in one version, I think we were supposed to conclude that Kay was a human that had been duped into thinking he was a replicant because that served somebody's aims. And so in this ending, what this would mean is in a world where it looks like humans are about to be eclipsed by robotic technology, the human can still win. You know, Rocky can still take down the big guy. And so that's what I think may have been, if you believed he was human, happening here. Even though she thought that she was better than, she thought she was better than him. And maybe she thought she was better than humankind. Certainly better than any other replicant model. She's been taken down a peg and that's a score for humanity. Maybe. They back away from that, and I'm not sure that that's a, a message that I think is even true. I mean, I feel like I like the idea of embracing more the ambiguity of Harrison Ford coming to meet his daughter. He gets the final shot. Yeah, we see Kay take him to, again, this is a facility. Like, this isn't a private home. This is like some kind of lab where... 
Again, I think there would be cameras. I'm, I'm trying to think about like the bigger world aspects of this Blade Runner 2049 world. And if these people are so dangerous, they would set off alarms. They set off triggers. But yeah, they go back to that lab where Anna is. And yeah, Kay's going to die on the steps while... Decker looks at his daughter, maybe? Who knows? Yeah, it's too ambiguous. I know that they want to retain that sense of, well, it could be this or it could be that, but a look of recognition would help here. The, the daughter would only remember Bautista and Freza. She never knew this guy, and he never saw the daughter, so they're just looking at each other as total strangers. Wouldn't it be interesting if we saw other memories she made, and there's always almost a Harrison Ford lookalike like there, like she kind of retained that memory as a baby? More of that in general. I believe, yeah, more things that leads you to holding a certain opinion. More things that you can use as evidence to conclude something would have been welcome throughout this movie. I thought putting the hand up to the glass was a very tender, nice moment. I felt that it's two strangers looking at each other. Everything you said, Stuart, was true. But putting the hand up to touch the glass, presumably that she would put her hand up eventually to it, it was a gesture of love that this man has not been able to feel towards this woman now, uh, his daughter, ever. And so to me, that was a tender moment, I think completely worked. I had, didn't feel as conflicted about their first meeting as you two were. I thought it was appropriate the way they reacted to each other because they are complete strangers and his putting a hand up against the glass, presumably to touch her, is all he could do. It's glass, right? So it was natural. It felt right. I thought it was played well. I had no problem with how that scene played out at all. I mean, maybe this ending would have worked better for me if I ever felt that Deckard cared about this child he had. I don't know if he does he had a child he ran off to keep it secret I don't know I, I needed something more that he wanted to reconnect with his child for this to be an emotional moment and here's the thing in general I would say we never liked Deckard Decker was an asshole. He was a rapist. He was a drunk. He was killing the wrong people. We like the replicants. So to do something where we might have actually cared about him might have been more helpful. It ends up just kind of feeling like the Mark Hamill moment in episode seven. It just teases that he could be a much bigger part of a sequel. But in and of itself, I'm not sure what we take away with him there at the glass. All right. Fair enough. So, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend... Blade Runner 2049. Jacob. You know, at one moment, Lieutenant Joshi says, this could break the world. This information that robots are having, robot babies. And I love this world. I love the sounds. I love the landscapes. When Kay walks in Vegas in this orange smoke and there's just bees everywhere. I, I love all those shots. Love the sound design. But the plot, the breaking of this world part, I just, I never feel that this feels like it should be a bigger story than that original Blade Runner because this is a huge revelation that these replicants that we as humans fear so much we should be out there killing and and getting rid of or fearing or just putting off world whatever I just don't feel it ever gets to that level where it feels like this is breaking the world so I like the world I don't like the plot part of it though that I felt like there is very little to take away it felt almost very hollow and empty to me to be frank, like there are, again, a lot of great shots, a lot of great sound design, the cinematography, fantastic. 
there's no emotion here. And I think back, maybe because I just saw that original Blade Runner the day before I watched this one, I think back about that and what does it mean to be human? When it is Deckard learning from hunting these replicants and watching Pris, you know, spaz around as she dies and Roy Batty's dead. Like those are emotional moments for me. This, I never felt that emotion. It's so it's it's a great looking movie. If you wanted that fan fiction sequel to Blade Runner, it's here. I just I don't think it's a great movie. I miss the epiphanies and the catharsis that I felt that original Blade Runner have. So it's a mild recommend. It's worth seeing just for the visuals alone, but don't get caught up in the plot because it's not very satisfying, but it's a recommend. Stuart. You know, I think of the three of us, I'm probably the biggest fan of the original. Huge sigh of relief. I was dreading it, guys. I couldn't take another Prometheus. I couldn't do it. It would kill me to watch him ruin his other great sci-fi movie. This is no Prometheus, I'll give you that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yes, the script is a mess. You know what? The original kind of had a messy screenplay. I forgive that. It gets the important things right. Very right. Visually masterful. Retains that existential longing. Beautiful, entrancing world of tragedy. They don't change the tone. They don't make it an action film. That's what I most feared when I heard Bautista and what have you. Villeneuve, you know, I think that he consistently makes films that are drenched in dramatic pathos. And while I never liked him as much as other people, I think that he was a good fit to get this headed in a new direction. I do wonder future sequels. It looks like they're setting up a robot war that could be much more like a Terminator movie. I'm less into that. And I'm not sure if I want to see more Harrison Ford, quite frankly. I like what Ryan Gosling did in this movie, minimalist as it was. I'm not sure what it would be like without him. But it is a solid continuation of the vibe of the original movie that puts forth lots of interesting ideas about artificial intelligence and robotics and gives you a lot of little things to think about and a storyline that at its best doesn't get in its way too often. So it's a solid recommend. I wish I liked it better, but it's so much better than what I feared it could be 35 years later. I think for all the talk we all three said about the muddled plot and things like that, that Stuart brought up a very good point, and I'm glad he brought it up before I did, is that some of the themes of the original movie, while not presented in the same way, were certainly present. And I think with a Blade Runner movie, you need the humanity thematic elements. You need all the stuff that we talked about in the first Blade Runner to be brought back into the fold in some level. Whether or not they succeeded in bringing it back in the way that all of us want, that could be debated. Because a lot of people, like myself, find the original Blade Runner taxing. While we do all acknowledge how beautiful it was and the visionary futuristic vision and what a great story and what amazing themes and and characters in that first movie that you can talk about, it's also labored, uh, hard to get to understand completely and to the point to a detriment to the viewer. Here, making it a little more simplistic maybe would help that for a lot of more casual viewers of Blade Runner. I, for one, did try very hard to stay involved with the plot to not get hoodwinked by the visuals, the sound the ideas. I wanted to make sure that the whole package was here. And I think they succeeded as we're all talking about visually. It's just a gorgeous movie. Well shot. I think the director did have a vision and he stuck to it. Thank God. He didn't come into this like other flat directors would. He had some ideas, which is great. I liked the performances. Yes, the plot didn't hold up as well as I wanted either, but it did a good enough job for me to want to know what's going to happen next. But to just be calling us out one more time, 
There is no reason this movie needs to be two hours and 45 minutes long. There are things in this movie that they tried to make justifications for of why it's there. And could they have cut this down and would they have gutted the movie if they did? I think the atmospheric vibe that Stuart just talked about, the tone, may have suffered if they cut it down much to a two-hour film. Fine. But a a two-and-a-half-hour movie, maybe even a 220, I would have been happier with. 245, just I felt it. And... I wasn't so into it because the plot was weak to allow for that. So look, I can recommend it. I'm giving it a weak recommend. I'm going to give you the exact same kind of recommend I did to the first one. It's not a better movie to me in that I like this one better than the first one. I liked the experience of watching this one more the first viewing. Because remember, I told you I was like 11 years old and I I hated it. Oh, yeah, yeah. My original viewing of Blade Runner when I was a child. Yeah, you can't compare. <laughs> Yeah, no one likes it the first time. Everyone has expectations that are dashed, and then you figure it out at some point. Totally. But I'm giving it the same quantified recommend that you have to see this movie, especially in the theater, for all the visuals and the looks and the things. And there's so many good things here. I agree with Jacob. It's a good movie. It is not a great movie. This movie is getting exceptional reviews. There's talk of Harrison Ford getting the Sylvester Stallone Oscar (laughs) nomination for this. No... Put some real pants on if you're going to star in a movie, get an Academy Award. Come on. Mm-mm. Look, Jacob and I both agreed that Sylvester Stallone was great in that movie. Whether or not we thought he should get an Oscar for it, an Oscar nomination was a nice tip of the hat. Harrison Ford is overdue, but I think they're going to give it to the cinematographer and all the visuals, all the tech stuff. If this movie gets a Best Picture nomination, which I honestly don't think it deserves, but who knows what the feel is going to be later on this year, I think it's just because everyone got hoodwinked by the amazing visuals. It's not a Mad Max Fury Road. No. Right? Mad Max Fury Road is a different kind of visual spectacle and with a plot that was interesting throughout. But I just want to be very clear. It's a recommend, but it's not a glowing one. It's a recommend because it's enough here for you guys to see it. And I recommend you see it in the theater because it's something to behold. But it's certainly not a great movie by any shakes of the imagination. And with that, we're shutting the book on Philip K. Dick in a while. I haven't heard about any other movie adaptations. I know they have a TV series coming where they're adapting more of his short works. That might work better, honestly. I think some of the problems for some of those movies were they stretched a good idea out for 90 minutes, and that's fine. But Brock, you will be coming back to pick up some old series at the end of this month. We are picking up for donors on the Child's Play series. It just came out on DVD, Cult of Chucky. And Netflix. It's streaming. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, we will get to that. Uh, It'll be during our break. Right now, we're going through the Phantasm series. And once we finish that, Cult of Chucky will premiere that Friday. And after that, if you go to gold level, we'll begin the Hellraiser series. And because we might have to wait till 2049 to get Cloverfield, which was pushed, (laughs) we have changed the platinum level. That's right. It is no longer Cloverfield. We're going with Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, I feel that's more in sync anyway. I mean, Cloverfield's a big space monster. Jeepers Creepers feels in line with Pinhead, with Tall Man, with Chucky. That's Slashers is kind of what we do here in the fall, and that makes a whole lot of sense to me. But we'll be getting to that series after we conclude what looks like it could be 10 
Definitely nine, and it, they've been teasing the 10th Hellraiser movie could be coming out in home viewing formats in the next two weeks. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Schedules are changing. I'm just going to say, as the now playing scheduler, <laughs> I'm tearing my hair out. I just found out this morning. Yeah, no more Death Wish. Yes, Death Wish, which we were building up to on our main feed and which we will get to Death Wish 3 next week. Well, we won't be getting to Bruce Willis's Death Wish this Thanksgiving. They pushed it. For whatever reason... Las Vegas, again. I think it probably has something to do with this, a recent national tragedy. And so I will have to look at when we will get to the conclusion of that. But we will continue to tease that on the main feed. And don't forget, Stuart, I'm also coming back for our return to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series with the new Leatherface. And boy, am I excited about another Leatherface movie. <laughs> I could tell. I mean, come on. You said that with all the emotion of K. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was my Ryan Gosling impression. Hey, that's perfect. I did forget, but we can put that in one of the weeks where Death Wish is supposed to come out. <laughs> All right, you've helped me with my scheduling. I'm going to get to work on this right now. But yes, you're right. We had that extra show. Okay, well, well put your skin suit on and, and take care of that schedule. I got to tell you, I mean, I, I know we have Leatherface fans out there, and I, I was being a little flippant and funny, but yeah, I'm more than happy to come back for that series, and I'm looking forward to discussing it. I don't know where else they're going to go after the last attempt at a reboot. It seems to me that they may have some gas left in that tank, but we'll find that out, I think, at the end of the month. <laughs> yes, we'll get it out by Halloween on the main feed, so everyone gets to hear it. And it should be said, you know, it is October, it's Halloween. If you're a donor, you could get Phantasm, Hellraiser, Jeepers Creepers, if you're into that horror stuff. Also, if you're a patron on Podbean, those patrons at the right level, we have another horror movie coming out. One of my favorite films, not just horror movies, but favorite films of the year, Get Out. Agree. This is a terrific film with a lot to discuss. Very topical, very creepy. A Polanski horror vibe. Not the usual slasher stuff we cover. A little more sophisticated, very dark, very big hit. It's actually one of the biggest grossing horror movies of all time. You, me, and Arnie will be discussing that for patrons in October. And remember, when you become a patron, you get to hear all of the old shows. So that means Warriors, that means Monster Trucks, that means <laughs> Legend of Hell House, and so many others that we've released at this point. You know, I really want Get Out to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. So if Blade Runner gets that, I'd be okay. But if Get Out gets that Best Picture nomination, I'm all for it. And what Stuart's referring to is that movie made, what, $200 million and it would cost like $5 million to make? It's like Blair Witch kind of profit. It's amazing. And to boot, it was a lot of fun to watch. So you guys are in luck. You get to watch it a second time or a third time to get to review it for now playing. You bet. And so much more to come, some of which I have to figure out right now <laughs> of Death Wish. I can't believe you just found out this morning. Our fans have been letting us know on Twitter, on Facebook, <laughs> everywhere that, hey, Death Wish isn't coming out. I was working on the show. I was trying to be ready for Blade Runner. But man, it's just hard to stay on top. But we will be with you week after week. We appreciate you coming and joining us. Next week, it is Death Wish 3. Thanks for listening. Until next time we meet for Philip K. Dick, get your ass to Mars. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. 
All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. I have to hand it to you. It's the best mindfuck yet. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stewart's thoughts on Philip K. Dick's original work. Just because I write science fiction doesn't mean I believe in this stuff. I don't even think flying softens are real. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick retrospective series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archives section, as well as reviews of other classic movie series, including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, all the Avengers movies, Batman, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Look, this has not been one of my better days, so just give me my five minutes of machine time. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our webpage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. Hope you enjoyed the ride! For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I want more life, fucker. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Very few humans have seen what you've seen today, and we're determined to keep it that way. So, if you ever reveal our existence, we'll erase your brain. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. It's like you know me. You can read me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as new episode announcements. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me? Into us? Clearly or darkly? Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. I've had people walk out on me before, but not when I was being so charming. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series Podcasts are produced by Arnie Carvalho. Come on, don't be mean to the one who does everything for you. The Now Playing Podcast Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Who the hell are you guys? We are the people who make sure things happen according to plan. Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Series credits announced by Arnie. I've seen every possible ending here. 
None of them are good for you. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. The film discussed in this podcast and all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the movie discussed in this show. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that book or film series. With any luck, this thing will just blow over. Not likely. Once the authorities open up a file on someone, they never close it. Now Playing is copyright and trademark, Venganza Media Incorporated, 2017, all rights reserved. Do you think I'd let you leave without a kiss goodbye? Love, the replicant henchwoman of Neander Wallace, played by Dutch newcomer Sylvia Hoax. Is it Hoax? Hoax? I'll say that again. Yeah. <laughs> sure, Hoax. Why not? Right. I know, because we're all Dutch. I'd say Hoax. Yeah. 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 Sure. <laughs> No, no, no. They they came out from different directors. They all had, oh gosh, they all had. Is it Denise? Denise? Dennis? I think we're going. It's Denny. 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 Yeah. Denny. They all had Denny. I mean, you have a. I'm guessing a forensic examiner there. This Coco. It's not Coco. <laughs> yeah, it's Coco. Is it Coco? Yeah, it is Coco. It's Coco. I don't know why. <laughs> Because they've specially formatted it as such. What's what's kind of funny about me? What you know? What, uh, what about me? <laughs> well, that's a longer conversation. <laughs> different show, Stuart. Different show. <laughs> you know what's kind of funny to me? There you go. I like that actress too, Mackenzie Davis. I've seen her in um uh what's that one? The computer show. I always forget the name of it. The halt and catch or catching some halt and catch something. I don't know. Yeah, and that's why I can't yeah, halt and catch fire or whatever. <laughs> it's a terrible title and no one's watching it, but I did see an episode and it seemed pretty cool. Occasionally work in the Vangelis at just the right moment. They tease the old soundtrack. Did he not come back for this? No, he did not come back for this. He's dead. Oh, I had no idea, but... Oh, I didn't know that either. Okay. I think he is. All right, now I need to get... You know what? Every time I declare yeah. someone dead, they're not dead, and I have to retract it. I'm sure Vangelis is dead, right? I'm looking it up. You're sure of it? I don't know. Uh, I mean, sure means I'm not looking it up, but yes, he... Wait, let's see. Never-ending story. He's he's a never-ending story guy, right? Uh, no, he's 74. There's not a death date on IMDb. Yeah, he is. He's a replicant. Yeah, let me check Wikipedia. <laughs> Why didn't he come back? He's only 74. Maybe he's retired. Maybe he's deaf in one ear. Maybe he has family issues. I don't know. All right. Uh, you're right. And he's not never any story guy. I'm wrong. Well, we got our blooper anyway. So go continue on with your thoughts. Okay, let's go Let's go back. Let's go back. Yeah, no, he, he is uh, still alive, according to IMDb and Wikipedia. No death date listed. Oh, he's Chariots of Fire. That's what he did. Yeah, yeah, that was his big one, yeah. Yes, of course. That's what got him Blade Runner. Of course, yes, of course. 
We now have Neander Wallace, Jared Leto, having no more screen time here than he did in Suicide Squad <laughs> as the Joker, who's now the one responsible for all AI. Do you think he sent Harrison Ford use condoms like he did with the cast in Suicide Squad? <laughs> Is that what he did? I, I wonder what yes. he did in Suicide Squad. I mean, but again... 